This is the second part of the interview with Michael Beloff, QC, described by the Legal 500 as the godfather of sports law, who talked to Lawn Sports CEO Sean Cottrell about his career in sports law and shared his views on a range of sports law matters. In this part, Michael discusses the potential for a collective of legal experts to help governing bodies to investigate corruption in sport, athlete representation on sports arbitration panels and sports boards, the changing role of lawyers in international sport, the one thing he would like for every sports governing body to implement, the future of good governance of sport, and the need for the rules, regulations, and disciplinary decisions of sports bodies to be publicly available. I hope you enjoy the show. Do you think there is scope, uh, appetite, because for putting together a collective of these essentially leading figures in the world of law um, to come together and set up a, 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 a pool of these experts who are distinguished, independent and so forth, to be drawn on by international federations, so say for like Anthony Hooper or others, because it seems to me there's so much goodwill in sport because people realise the most people have been touched by sport in some capacity, hopefully in a positive way. I think some people have negative experiences, but a vast majority of people around the world, it's one of these you know things that you can go and pick up a football in a, a bunch of countries or basketball, baseball, whatever it may be, and you can participate in sport. And people will just come together. Um, do you think there be there is room for someone to put together? and go around and say, look, we need former High Court, Supreme Court judges, we need these sort of people to be pulled on to do these type of investigations and, and even advise on the, some of the structures that are in place with some of these international federations. Well, that's a very interesting suggestion. I mean, I think the answer is that by now, because, as you say, it's developed so much, um, for example, when I started in the idea of um, a major city firm having a sports law department would have been unthinkable, not because it was regarded as um, something, as it were, below the salt or infra dig, but just there wasn't enough of it. But now, of course, it's very familiar. They, they all have, um, almost all of them have a sports law departments. I think because of this, I think the identity of the persons who are prominent in the area is fairly generally known. And therefore, I doubt that there's a need to, as it were, identify a pool of people who are not already attached um, from which people could be drawn. I think what, I mean, and after all, there is a certain sense, I suppose, in which sports wish to be autonomous and therefore, you know, the IF wants to have, as it were, its own people. FIFA wants to have its own people. Richard McLaren, who was Dick Pound's right-hand man in the Russian uh, matters, he's got a, 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 a body that he set up. I mean, he's a distinguished academic himself, as well as a CAS arbitrator, called Global Sporting Solutions or something yeah. of that kind. I've noticed that he's started to call upon people. He, I mean, for example, he called upon me for the UFC, but he also for the Ironman. Um, and so I, I suspect you're going to get the same people who are the people already known. So essentially, inevitably, yeah. it's happening anyway. It's happening Is anyway. In the sense yeah. that, you know, because I guess the, the pressures that are out there are, you meet people who are credible, who are independent, who've got a, tra a past mm. history of, of um, 
being good adjudicators. Yes, and, and people, don't forget, people who are actually interested, I mean, take Tony Hooper, will know people who are already involved, and if they're interested, they probably will ask someone, how do I get into this? And then the word will get around that there might be the it, kind it, of person. It's, it's, it's a really... I want to move on to more about your career, but okay, I could talk, so, because um, I could just, I could just listen to you talk most of the day to review. Okay. But but, but the, on this point in particular, I yeah. think it's one of those um, when I started doing law in sport, one of the assumptions that, that I recognised in the sector was people assumed that people knew how to get access. It's one of the things that I believe in social mobility and I believe in education is something that I do aside with law and sport and aside from law and sport. And I say to people, I don't think you realise. So when I left school at 16, for example, I didn't know how to go to university mm. after working in law firms. I didn't know. Luckily, someone researched for me and said, right, you need to get an A-level mm. and then you need to go. But I had no concept. And whilst um, people in the sports or connected to the sports world know how to access these things, I do wonder sometimes if we assume too much knowledge um, about how people can access certain activities because we take it for granted, I, I put my hands up this, I take it for granted now that people understand some of the structures and parties involved, but as it's got increasingly um, uh, complicated and so many parties involved, and particularly someone like yourself who's you know, extremely bright and, and, and knowledgeable and, and, and just you know, has such a good understanding of law in itself, the legal systems in multiple jurisdictions, I question whether or not, uh, particularly given there's a, there's different degrees of, of legal systems, as say, or efficiencies and, and professionalism of legal systems around the world, and the same with sports governing bodies, I question whether or not there are some jurisdictions or some countries where it, that may be the case, that people can get pulled upon, and others where, which we've seen, I think, exported at FIFA, where there's only a small group of people who know really what's going on, and therefore uh, the exclusion of others who may be beneficial to the sport. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree that probably there is a disparate spread of talent, or certainly of experience, uh, throughout the world. But when I think of the major areas within it, when I think of Asia, Southeast Asia, Australasia, um, the Americas, North, South, uh, Canada, Europe, etc., etc., and the Middle East, I can immediately identify people in those. I suspect that what used to be called, and I hope it's not uh, inappropriate still to call it for convenience, Black Africa, there's probably a, a lesser number of persons who are involved. But... Uh, you know, I, I was, uh, in my capacity as chairman of the IF, I was um, adjudicating on whether or not to continue a provisional suspension, and we had um, um, a, a, a Kenyan lawyer who argued the case, argued it admirably, didn't succeed, but um, argued it very well. There are, I know. I think CAS, if you looked at the number of persons on CAS and identified them by region, I suspect, though I wouldn't put my hand on heart and say, I know, I suspect you would find less persons from that area of the world than from others. Um, but not that there are none, and as I say, it's uh, simply a question of the, the, the message spreading. Just to come back to a point you did raise before about Cass and Peckstein, I've regarded, I must say, with some scepticism, the underlying philosophy behind this challenge. You've got a body now in CAS, which is over 300 arbitrators worldwide. 
you are entitled as a party to choose an arbitrator uh, from that group of persons. Uh, the chairman, of course, is chosen by um, CAS or by CAS itself. It seems to me all but inconceivable that you are actually denied the possibility of getting someone in whom you have confidence when you've got such a wide spread from so many diverse areas and now genders, etc., etc. I can see the argument when we prefer to have the opportunity to choose someone from anywhere. And, but the argument against that, well, A, you've got enough choice, and B, you actually, the reason people are appointed to CAS is because they do have... Um, a degree of perceived expertise, and if you're going, to, you would dilute that if you just said, "I want to be." Well, and what do you think about anywhere. the? And we're doing a lot of stuff about athlete education, mm. so hopefully we're getting enough more athletes into law, yeah. as you know. And um, what do you think about the argument? So Brendan, for example, Brendan Schwab from New World Athletes, mm. he would say that um, uh, he take. I'm sure he'd take those points and then mm. come back with something along the lines of. But due to the structure of ICAS, there's not enough athlete representation. Yeah, well, I've no doubt that would be a good idea. And I think right. that, I mean, all the governing bodies, aren't they? I mean, you know, you've got the, the Athletes Commission and the IOC has been long-standing for a while. I think that's where Thomas Back and Sebco uh, first met. The IF have now got an Athletes Commission. I've no doubt that um, ICAS will also um, make certain they have got persons on it actually who may not be current athletes but certainly former athletes but they may, may move into that. I don't think there's a sort of obdurate resistance in principle to having athletes represented and if you ask me in principle obviously it's a good thing. And do you think one of the things that came up with the Basel Conference and mm-hmm. they thought was an exciting idea was having um, like over here with um, UK Sport and Sport India trying to push um, a certain number, a percentage of women representation yes. on the board. Do you think that um, and I thought it was a really interesting concept. I can't remember for the life of me, and I apologise if they're listening to the person who came up with the idea, um, but having a certain quota for athletes actually on the board, so rather than have the commission, yes. where it's filled in, you actually have, and whether it is former athletes on the board, I thought that was an interesting um, concept. Well, I agree. I mean, I'm a tremendous feminine, male feminist. I've been described <laughs> by no less than Baroness Hale in a lecture, so I'm... <laughs> hugely in favour of increasing the number of women on these boards, but I equally agree that it'd be a good idea to have um, athletes um, on board. I remember when I was... I'm just trying to remember where I sat next to this guy. It was a meeting... I think, actually, it was... No, it was, it was um, when I went to address <coughs> the IF Council uh, in Monaco, and I sat next to the guy who was then head of the... Um, I think the Athletes Commission, he was incredibly tall. You could tell he was a high jumper. He was a very bright guy, again, um, who was highly educated, I think, um, also in law. I mean, there are some very impressive people coming out. And as I say, don't forget that um, you may not have, at the moment, many current athletes uh, in these relevant positions, but you do have a fair sprinkling of former athletes who are well aware of the kind of pressures and influences and interests that the athletes have, and at the end of the day, as you, uh, <laughs> I mean, 
it's what the sport is all about. It's the athletes Absolutely. performing as well for you and I. Absolutely. Yeah. Me, and I, I think we can sometimes yes. forget that, in this, particularly in yeah. our sphere, because as I said, yeah. we go to conferences, we talk about all these content ideas, and I we know. actually forget it's about yeah. the athletes, yeah. and, uh, and or young people, whoever it is, or anyone actually. Just and it's actually about sport. I've got so many questions I'd like to ask you. I'm conscious of We've the time. We've got 20 minutes or so. Yeah. Yeah. So, so 25 I, minutes. I, I'm really conscious of the time, but um, I just think it's, it just shows you that, that how much things have developed. And I always say that now, but I, I, I still something with Barack Obama, and he said, because we, you know, we can get caught up in or, uh, basically complaining about the structures, and I think it's great that we, we try to push things and develop them. But if you were to be involved in sport any moment in time, you'd probably want to be involved in the sport at this moment in time, given the structures, the money, uh, the attention that, that, that it gathers. Um, given the number of cases that you've been involved with, and it's maybe difficult for you on the spot, but can you think of what was the most interesting case you've been involved with, either as an advocate or as, um, or maybe you want to pick one from each, one that you've advocated and one that um, you're on the panel for? Well, I mean, there's no doubt, um, as an advocate, um, uh, it stands out a mile. Um, you may remember that Christina Horogu um, was the was banned from the Olympics for having um, not been present on three successive occasions when um, doping control inspectors came to visit her. We had this rule at that stage that, that was a disqualification. And I was in Berlin attending the World Championships as a guest of the Federation in 2007, and she won a dramatic gold medal there. And I turned to Ed Warner, uh, who was CEO of UK Athletics, and said, you know, I'll represent uh, Christine for nothing to challenge this ban. And it's amazing how the Bush Telegraph worked. Within five minutes, her agent came up to me, he'd actually got around <laughs> on the stand where we were and said, is that right? Absolutely. And lo and behold, it did happen. Uh, I uh, represented Christine. We got the ban uh, removed. She then competed for UK in the Beijing Olympics. And I was in the bird's nest watching her breast the metaphorical tape and get the only gold medal we got in track and field at that particular Games. And I don't think for an advocate one's ever had a more emotional experience seeing one of one's clients as it were succeeding in circumstances you wouldn't have competed at all. And I think I went completely wild, had to be all restrained <laughs> by my fellow cast people sitting, what on earth, why are you so excited about it? So that was that one. Um, in terms of adjudication, I suppose probably the spot-fixing case, um, the Russian, uh, the c corruption, the extortion bribe case earlier this year, and a third one, which is probably not so well known, though I understand it is actually a little known this side of the equator, but is hugely well known uh, in Australasia, is a case about the Essendon um, Australian Football yeah. Club, uh, where, um, I mean, they've actually written a book about the whole of that sequence. This was a team that was alleged to have been on illicit substances for the whole of a season. And I'd never heard of them before. And when I asked, why is this so important? Because the um, Secretary General of CAS actually said, would you be prepared to go and chair this means going to Australia, etc., etc. And, and someone said, well, it's as if someone alleged that the 
Arsenal, mm. the whole of the first team, were on drugs for the whole of a season. So, as I say, we went and it was a very interesting, highly well-contested issue with five very long days with all kinds of experts and so on. And I was sitting with uh, the former Chief Justice of Victoria, who the first time he'd ever been on a CAS panel with a very eminent man and another uh, well-known CAS arbitrator. And in the end, we decided the case was made out. They appealed the Swiss Federal Tribunal. They just dismissed it. So there we are. So those three, I think, probably stand out. And the Essendon one, I agree, is... is, is it's going to be the talks about for many, many years. Yeah, it's still uh, in Australia. Yeah. It's still, if you know, I'm sort of Google it. There's some other oh, person I've met, that's I've met come people up. who are at the club. Yeah, and you know, there's accounts that I think are still to come out. Really, and there's so many different versions of events. I think mm-hmm. we only really know truly what's happened in yeah. another 10, 20 years time. Um, but yeah, an, uh, an astonishing case, and um, uh, people one that people often, and this is the thing in sport. People are extremely passionate about, well, of course uh, which are. is I think it's, it may, it's an interesting for sports lawyers because because yeah. you when I was at the when I was at the, the annual meeting of the um, FIA Formula One um, uh, International Appeal Panel um, in Paris, um, they don't pay us but they give us first class expenses and they give us a marvelous dinner, and I was sitting next to um, the wife of an Australian who'd come across also on the panel. And I said, where'd you come from? And she said, Melbourne. I said, well, I better put my hands up immediately. And so I was the person who chaired the Essendon panel. She said, don't worry about that. She said, I support the other team. <laughs> <laughs> so we got on fine. <laughs> but the, um, now, you wanted to move on to other things, I think, outside. Well, well, well no, that, was, well, that, was, that, oh, that was, was the other thing. That, was, well, that was one of the other things. The yeah. other thing that I wanted to talk about, the two things that I'd like to hear your um, views on, is what do you see the role or how do you see the role of lawyers developing um, in, in international sport? Um, you know, you've, you've been there where, the, where lawyers were, were largely on the outside to a point now where they've come all the way into being an integral part of, of good sports governance, I'm hoping at least. Um, where do you see the role of lawyers developing? Or how do you see them developing? Right. If you ask how um, I justify my own existence, the fact that I spend (laughs) now a considerable amount of my time on international sports arbitration, I say rather pompously or grandly, well, I am trying, as it were, to bring ethics into sport or to guarantee that ethics are a major part of sport. And I think that is the way in which lawyers are expected to contribute. Now... Of course, I now mainly adjudicate, though I still advise and occasionally represent, but one has to bear in mind, especially those who come from an adversarial system and a common law, that advocates make, if not the same contribution as adjudicators or judges or arbitrators, whatever they are, at least a very considerable contribution to that, because after all, the notion is you have both sides argued, and it's as a result of the quality of the argument that the adjudicative body or person is able to reach the conclusion most consonant with justice. And I've given lectures about this, about the the, the role of advocacy in this. So it's really a collaborative exercise. Of course, there is, as it were, a downside. Sometimes, you know, very clever lawyers are able to... um, (laughs) 
act for clients who perhaps have behaved in a somewhat disreputable way, take technical points, delay matters, etc., etc. But bearing in mind, as long as they are themselves persons of integrity, I mean, you are able to argue the best case you possibly can, and no one can criticise you for that. So, you know, lawyers are not always very popular, but underlying it all, there is this search for justice, which ought to be the imperative. Well, and if they get paid a lot of money as well, well on that be point, it. then, if there's one or two things that you would love to be able to, with a magic wand, change in sport right this second to improve the ethics of sport, because I'm fascinated by ethics as well, I agree with you, I think it's, a, again, people bound, like, for example, people use the word integrity a lot, which I find infuriating because, you know, what one considers to have integrity may be different to what someone else considers to have integrity. Um, if there was something that you could do, I would insist that every, every, either everyone or every institution in sport had or implemented into their rules, what would it be? I would like some way in which those bodies which are responsible for ensuring ethical behaviour in sport were given the powers uh, to be able to do so effectively, which means in some way either being able to ensure, and this would have to be a matter of the public law of the land, collaboration with those bodies such as police or public prosecutors that do have that, or indeed, that though I would, um, uh, no, I, th I think I'd react to Gates's, in some way, I mean, government may have to be involved. One really wants a United <laughs> Nations body all agreeing that this is what we ought to be doing. I mean, that is, I suppose, blue sky, pie in the sky well, thinking. I but I think the first of the two points I've made is the one that I would really like. I've thought about this, mm -hmm. and Anthony Hoover said a similar thing as well. Yes, he and, has. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I have dwelled on this, and I thought that one of the problems to that, I don't think it's unachievable, but I think one of the problems is trust. And so because you don't have good governance across the board, mm -hmm. then uh, particularly athletes or, other, or even fans for that matter will go, well, hold on, I'm not too keen on... Uh, whether it be FIFA or someone else having powers, given that they're, they're checkered past. Yes. And so do you think maybe that if we can improve the governance, though, well, you get a minimum standard of governance, then that might be more yeah, likely? you want minimum standards of government. Of course, you also want a system to which all countries are willing to subscribe, and it doesn't require very much imagination to identify some countries who are less likely to subscribe than others. That having been said... Um, I think in my own experience, one has to recognise that so-called hometown decisions are not peculiar to what one might have used to said of behind the Iron Curtain countries or that. I mean, one of the matters when I was involved in, in acting for the IAF as a prosecutor and advisor and so on is that you did get in America, they had, the USA, they had these what we call clearly hometown decisions. They said protection of athlete confidentiality uh, trumps any uh, collaboration that we ought to have with the international body. And that's one of the reasons that the IAF then had a system in which they themselves could call in decisions for the American bodies that they didn't feel were necessarily sound. And the ICC also had a similar um, system. So it's... Uh, every. I mean, 
Sport is so important in terms nowadays of national prestige that there really is an acute tension between a body's desire to police a sport in its area um, with the result that certain of its star performers may not be able to perform in major international championships um, as against um, the desire to have values in sport. I've always thought that at the end of the day, what's going to dictate the future of sport is not actually lawyers or even administrators or even national or international governments. What is going to dictate it is one sponsors who are responsible for the commercial success who simply say we are no longer going to fund or participate or sponsor a sport that is generally regarded as tarnished but underlying all that even more importantly is the spectating uh, public or the listening public the likes of you and me in our capacity as people who watch games live on television listen to them as my wife does to cricket obsessively on the radio if at the end of the day we think that what we are watching or hearing is not in fact fair open competition that is being dictated by corrupt manoeuvres by doping etc etc we will turn away and the whole edifice will crumble at the end of the day it's it's in our hands it's interesting you say that because before <laughs> before I would have said unquestionably that maybe a couple of years ago I would have said I agree with that in its entirety and I think I still largely do um, you know agree with you on that point um, it'd be hard to disagree with you Georgia. however I've started to question given the say for example the significance and the attention that football dominates and someone wrote a really interesting piece about competition and they said this one there is to be a chance of someone so say for example in the, I think the Premiership is much more competitive now but say uh, five years or so ago they said they didn't mind that the, the top teams always won because people just wanted a percentage chance, and that was the thing that excited them. And I thought that's an interesting concept in the sense that, um, on the one hand, if you look at Indian cricket, mm. you know, their sponsorship value went right down when they had integrity issues. Um, you know, so they had to get, they get those addressed quickly. But on the other hand, from the, I'm starting to question the knowledge base of some of the fans or the awareness, because how much attention, essentially, is driven by how much attention the media give to it. So, so for example, in order, if, if say for example in sports or circles, we will understand that there are maybe some integrity issues in uh, more so in certain sports than others. And other people who are closer to the sport. But when you get out, and so say for example, if you look at the Russian case, for example, and the understanding that people have, the wider public have of doping. Some people, I was speaking to someone last week, they're quite surprised to hear, you know, what we would consider quite, you know, obvious. Um, Risks, let's just say, with the sport of being open to abuse by certain athletes in certain jurisdictions, um, whether it be to funding or governance, or as I said, some of the indicators that you said. But people still watch sport and it plays such an important role that, and I look at things like uh, an example that I'd give look at WWE. Is it WWE now? What the, what the world? You know, it's a, it's a it's a fake sport essentially. Mm. It's an entertainment, yes. and this element of how much of sport now is about entertainment, how much of it is about genuine competition. Because I love the Paralympics for this reason, because mm. it feels whether or not that's a correct assessment. But I I, I, I don't know the 
the endeavours seem to be much more enjoyable to watch in, for me anyway, in, in the Paralympic sport than it did in the Olympics. It may have been because my first child was born during the, <laughs> the Olympics, but so I didn't have as much time to, 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 to watch it. Um, but in a sense, because it became more entertainment. Than, no, but yeah, no, uh, I mean, insofar as there are things that are acknowledged to be pure entertainment, yeah. like uh, wrestling and, you know, the, I guess that's all the era of and pre of John Haystacks and <laughs> Mick McManus and people like that. Well, so be it. But, but if you're saying that actually there are large sections of the public who, in the end, don't mind so much as long as their team is winning. Well, there it is. I mean, obviously, for what I said to be in the end decisive does require a collective or majority mindset among those persons who follow sport that, you know, enough is enough and we are simply just not going to come and follow the sport if we are not convinced that it's a level playing field. And on that point, then, the final question for you, um, and I keep saying final question, but this will be the final question because I know you're going to shoot off. Um, access to information mm. seems to be, an, a, a, an education seems to be crucial to, 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 to that view that you hold. Not, I would actually, in the main, not, I agree with you entirely. Yeah. Um, and so the the people who don't think there's so much of an issue about their, their team winning, I think it's mainly because they don't have that knowledge. From our perspective as people involved in sports law, how important do you uh, think it is that decisions where possible, as long as there's not you know, issues of privacy about you know, medical records or something like that that would be considered private in the, in the, the civil courts, how important do you think it is that rules and regulations are, for, are public, publicly available and the decisions of disciplinary panels are publicly available with the exception of those uh, you know, certain you know, confidential um, and private um, matters. Well, I mean, I have a bias in favour of transparency. It isn't, of course, the only value. Um, one of the issues, I can illustrate this if it is the last question, but by something which I have direct knowledge. When I took over, uh, I was appointed as first chair of the Ethics Commission, now the Ethics Board of the IAF, we had a rule that was given to us, it wasn't part of our own rule, which said um, everything you do has to be entirely confidential until the moment comes when there's been a disciplinary hearing and a verdict of guilty has been announced. The result of this was that we couldn't let anyone know what it was we were doing. And for example, we were onto the Russian case, so-called, before uh, WADA, before anyone else, in fact, before even Mr. Seppel's famous documentary. We couldn't tell anyone. We were getting stick in the press because some people were saying, well, what is this, you know, what's it doing? These things are being broadcast now. And it, uh, so I um, said uh, with the, uh, my colleagues, we have to get this rule changed. And we got the rule changed. So we are now able to say what we were do 
about doing with subject to this proviso as long as we feel it necessary for the proper performance of our functions. In other words, we're not there just to feed the media mm. interesting tidbits about so-and-so's under suspicion or investigation or other, but the public have a right to know. So within those restraints, and I actually think it's a nice balance that, uh, of course, as it were, which side of the line uh, some item of news falls has to be a matter for judgment. You know, people might quarrel with our judgment and say, you said too much or you haven't said enough. But um, that, I think, respects what ought to be the position. And, and particularly, well, we don't want to go to some subsets. Obviously, issues of medical confidentiality and so on are very, very important. And I don't think uh, you know, athletes shouldn't uh, you know, surrender all their rights. I mean, <laughs> they surrender enough in the uh, world of you know, doping with you know, having to be, let everyone know where they are at any particular time. I, I'm often amazed in the sense that there aren't more people who fall foul of that particular rule, yeah. being entirely innocent just because they just forget to say they've moved from place A to place B. Oh, I agree. And, and, and you, you know, I, I brought this question up at the Basel conference and yeah. I brought it up against others. And when you have, uh, as well, when the systems start to become more complex and you need medical experts to help distinguish, distinguish between certain mm-hmm. things, it, it starts to become a huge burden on the athlete. And so I think that at the same time, then there has to be an obligation mm-hmm. that one, the governing bodies in Central Federation and everything have a certain level of governance. Mm. to offset that burden to say well, okay we, if we expect this burden on you we, have, we meet certain Absolutely. criteria no, no. and we also give a certain and, amount of education which, and, which I think and, is, and we give you a voice as well yeah, yeah. to come back to a point you made earlier very fairly Michael, thank you so much for your time. It was thoroughly enjoyable. I wish you could go. I genuinely do wish you could go on for another couple of hours, but I don't think I could <laughs> afford it. Agree with that. <laughs> thank okay, you. Then. Sadly, that's all we have time for for this show. I hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, for all your latest sports law updates and information, you can go to lawnsport.com or follow us on Twitter at lawnsport. Go to our YouTube channel. Follow us on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also go to our website to sign up for our weekly email. Thanks again for tuning in.